6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 24 and 25. Okay, we're in the book of Jeremiah. If you wandered in the wrong place, Revelation's across the plaza. Last time, we finished chapter 23, is that correct? And we are in chapter 24. I'm going to sort of hustle through because I'm anxious to get to chapter 25. We've got some wild material in chapter 25. Okay, Jeremiah, chapter 24, verse 1. The Lord showed me, and behold... Two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord, after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the craftsmen and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. Well, first of all, Nebuchadnezzar, which your Bible probably has, is actually probably the more accurate pronunciation, but we're also used to the Nebuchadnezzar, which the Hebraized transliteration leads us to. So I won't try to correct that, although if you're going to pick between the two, the Nebuchadrezzar is actually the, perhaps, scholars believe, maybe the more closely to the uh, Chaldean pronunciation. But in any case, same guy. We'll talk a lot. We have talked a lot about him, and we'll talk some more about him uh, before the evening's over. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, uh, these two baskets of figs, it's going to be a strange idiom because there's going to be good ones and bad ones. And what's really interesting are the good ones are the ones that go into captivity. The bad ones are the ones that don't. That sounds backwards until you really understand what the Lord is trying to communicate to these people through Jeremiah. Verse 2, one basket had very good figs, even like the figs that were first ripe. The other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then said the Lord unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs. The good figs, very good, and the bad, very bad, that cannot be eaten because they are so bad. Okay. Sort of straightforward for King James English, right? like to figure out how to add something to that, but I don't think I can. They're pretty straightforward. Verse 4. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and will build them, and not pull them down. I will plant them, and they and not Pluck them up, and I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. Now, he's really looking ahead for that, by the way, because there's a lot of intervening history. But um, were they, was he their God, that is, the people he's talking to? No, that's the whole problem. 
is that they were worshiping idols. He wasn't their God. He wanted to be. And uh, they were all worshiping idols, and that's exactly what Jeremiah has been setting forth all the way through. But the day will come when he brings them back from the captivity that they will, in fact, uh, worship him and with their whole heart. Now, verse 8, And like the bad figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so bad. Surely, thus saith the Lord, so will I give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places to which I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and their fathers. Strange idiom here. Basically, the idea is this is just another way of amplifying what um, Jeremiah has been telling them, is that Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant. We're going to talk a lot about that more in chapter 25, but the enemies of Israel have been raised by God to be their instrument of judgment. And what Jeremiah is telling them to either repent or submit, in other words, not to fight Babylon. Now, of course, Zedekiah and his princes were pro-Egyptian, the contrary power, and um, uh, kept having intrigues to their own detriment. But Jeremiah is saying, no, the Babylonians are going to succeed. You're wasting your time with these other petty alliances that Nebuchadnezzar is going to succeed. And it's an interesting idiom. The good figs are those who get taken into captivity. Why? Because even though they're slaves in Babylon, they will return to the land. And they are also, by submitting to Babylon, in effect, submitting to that instrument which God has raised. Very strange message. And, of course, the bad figs are the ones that resist. Now, that's sort of backwards. You'd sort of think, gee, the patriots and zealots are fighting the invaders. No, they're not. They're recognizing uh, God's message to them, which is that the Babylonians are God's instrument for their, for their uh, judgment. Now, we're going to find that this, this uh, theme of Jeremiah gets extremely unpopular. We're going to discover in chapter 26 uh, that he gets actually tried for heresy, gets put on trial. And uh, chapter 26 is actually the amplification of the temple address that we took in chapter 7. Remember, I warned you that these aren't in chronological order. And, of course, I'm getting ahead of the game. But the point is, Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant. Jeremiah is God's messenger and trying to get this across. Now, a couple of other interesting things. Um, strangely enough, in the Gospels, if you watch carefully, Jesus talks about a fig tree in a vineyard. And you just read in Mark or wherever it is, you read that, you sort of pass through it because you get onto the, the point of his parable. But it's kind of interesting. What is the fig tree? Judah. What's the vineyard? Israel, in the collective sense. And it's interesting that those idioms have some consistency here. Now, what makes this also interesting is the figs ripen in June. Now, I realize that fact. You may wonder, that's interesting. What do I do with that piece of information? Store it away, because we're going to talk about the Six-Day War in a few chapters and how that all fits together. So just a little, little comment there that figs ripen in June. I thought you would enjoy that. You mystics among us, you, you advanced students of prophecy will say, aha, another one of Missler's nonsense. No, another um, in, perhaps insight.
I should also point out that the exiles that were taken into captivity in Babylon, the good figs here, strangely enough, they prospered in Babylon. Yes, they were slaves, and yes, they were deported, but they really don't too badly. In 2 Kings 25, and chapters 27 through 30, and 2 Kings 25 deals with this, and we're also going to come across it in Jeremiah 29, uh, that, that idea that they, even though they're exiles, that they, they prosper. In fact, they prosper so well that when they finally get freed to go back to the homeland, when after Cyrus the Persian issues his decree, you all know the story how Cyrus conquered Babylon, and uh, uh, this, uh, and he gets uh, presented this letter written to him by name, written 150 years earlier, that's, which we call Isaiah 44 and 45. Uh, Cyrus is impressed because he's called by, na- by name there, because I'm calling you by name, surnaming you. Even though you've not known me, you'll know that I'm the God of Israel. And Cyrus is so impressed with this that he provides for their release. What's interesting is we talk under Ezra and Nehemiah. They regather in the land, right? And they rebuild the wall and all this stuff, right? Interesting issue because there's only 37,000 of them. When you read the scripture carefully, you'll discover the remnant that returned to the land to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple and all of that. And we'll talk more about that too, of course, shortly. It's not a big number. As I remember, I'm doing this from memory, but I think there's something like 37,000 some odd that go back, which ain't a bunch. What does that mean? That they prosper the rest, profit. When they're freed, they didn't want to leave. They, you know, they're comfortable. They, they dropped the root there. They hadn't gone back to the land. So that's kind of provocative. Okay, we could, uh, we could prattle more on this. Uh, this business of them being removed and so forth. We've been in Deuteronomy 28 and all of that, uh, which can be, you can look at this as being fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar. You can also see this as the fall of Jerusalem under Titus Vespasian. We've talked about that before. And I don't think we need to press that anymore. We've been over that material. Now we get to chapter 25. Chapter 25 actually is earlier in time. Uh, From the point of view of Jeremiah, to really confuse you, it actually occurs between chapters 35 and 36, but that's because the whole book is is a strange compilation of messages, so they're not obviously in chronological order. But chapter 25, very important chapter. As I've mentioned before, but just to remind you one more time, there's a very, very important battle in ancient history called the Battle of Karshemesh. That's where this young general by the name of Nebuchadnezzar uh, defeats Pharaoh Necho at the Euphrates, and it's one of the most decisive battles in the history of the world. It alters the whole future of, of West Asia. Now, that's very important for us because that sets the, the rise of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, during it's during the, uh, a subsequent siege of Jerusalem that his father dies, Nebuchadnezzar dies, and Nebuchadnezzar, this uh, successful general, becomes the king of Babylon. Young guy. And, of course, he distrusts his advisors of his now-deceased father, and that's what gives rise to this peculiar test. When he, lo- he, he, he levels—I mean, he doesn't level. He just, he just uh, takes charge of Jerusalem, sets up a vassal king, takes Daniel and the young, promising uh, young men as uh, slaves for the court of Babylon, puts them through postgraduate school, but then uses the opportunity in Daniel chapter 2 to test these old advisors of his father to see if they really knew what they were doing. And that gives rise to the whole Daniel 2 episode and the image and all of that. But young man, very bright guy, does some very progressive things. Very interesting, interesting man. Uh, Very worth your study. The other reason, though, that this is so important is this event launches a period of time which in Luke is called the Times of the Gentiles. Times of the Gentiles 
span the time from Nebuchadnezzar's rise as a king of Babylon through the rise of another world leader who is probably alive today that will appear on the scene. You and I will probably not see his rise. We will watch it from the mezzanine. Daniel, there's two chapters in the Bible, Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel 7, which chronicle specifically the Gentile history. Most of the Bible, you know, deals with the history of Israel. God's dealing with Israel and the land and all of that. There are a couple of exceptions, the two most prominent ones being Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, which deals with the, specifically the times of the Gentiles. Daniel chapter 2 is a vision that Nebuchadnezzar has in dream one night that he ultimately calls upon Daniel to interpret, and that's the vision of all Gentile dominion from Nebuchadnezzar to the Antichrist in terms as man sees it, bright, shiny metals. Later on in Daniel's career, he's standing by the river, and he sees the night visions, and these strange creatures come out of the river in Daniel chapter 7, and he, he sees the same series of empires, but as God sees them, as voracious beasts preying upon one another. But both of them are a chronicle of the times of the Gentiles, a time that's very critical to understand if you're going to grasp the Bible uh, collectively and individually. Secondly, it's also great interest to you and I because A, we're Gentiles, and B, we're living at the conclusion of that spectacular set of prophecies. And so the Battle of Karshemesh, the rise of Nebuchadnezzar, very, very important, and we're going to see in chapter 25 uh, even more so. Now, in the first verse of chapter 25, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning the people of Judah, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke unto all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, and it goes on. Now, this is very, very precisely dated. The first year of Nebuchadnezzar, you'll find this here in chapter 36, first verse, chapter 45, first verse, chapter 46, second verse. For rough purposes, we're going to talk about chronology later, but to give you it's roughly 605 B.C., first year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, you may compare this with Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, and perceive a slight discrepancy. That's because there's two ways of reckoning a year when a king accedes to the throne. There's the accession year or the non-accession year. Judah did it one way, Babylonian, Babylon did it another way. The two actually agree, although it may not look like it at first. And uh, if you, the minute you get into these chronological issues, it gets complicated. And But uh, some of that complication is worth wading through because of some interesting surprises in store for us as we, we tackle some of those issues. First year of Nebuchadnezzar. This is the first invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. This is chronicled in 2 Kings chapter 24. For those of you that want to, may want to do some background reading. The first siege of Nebuchadnezzar. This starts a period called the servitude of the nation. And we're going to see that in this chapter, in verse uh, 9 and 10 and 11, the duration of that servitude is prophesied. The servitude of the nation is prophesied to be 70 years. We'll come to that, but just to give you, I'm trying to give you the overview. And that goes from Nebuchadnezzar through Cyrus when he conquers Babylon and lets them go. He lets them go home and build their temple, not the wall of the city, the temple. There's another period also prophesied to be 70 years called the Desolations of Jerusalem. 
And most of you who may study, see and study Bibles will treat those as synonyms they're not. The servitude of the nation starts at the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar when the nation ceases to be free and, in fact, is a vassal of Babylon. Some years later, they rebel. Nebuchadnezzar puts that down, puts up Zedekiah and takes the other guys captive, and, all, and, and, and Ezekiel gets deported in the second siege. Some years later, they once again rebel, Zedekiah and his gang, and Nebuchadnezzar has a belly full of it, and he set, lets siege a third time, but this time levels the place and takes them all, and Jerusalem ceases to exist. And that's the beginning of the desolations of Jerusalem. It's also prophesied to be 70 years. Now, what's interesting is that when Cyrus gives the commandment to release the exiles, the slaves, to go back home and rebuild their temple, allow them freedom to, to worship and so forth, they do. They have a meager beginning. They have all their troubles under Ezra, as you probably may recall. And it's a guy by the name of Nehemiah who is a cupbearer to king, Artaxerxes Longimanus, some substantial period after Cyrus, who's troubled because the Jews are back in their land, but they're, they're harassed. They have no sovereignty. And he prevails upon Artaxerxes Longimanus, who issues a decree to give them the authority to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. That's different than the temple. And many of your study Bibles, when you get into this, you'll notice there's all these different decrees. Most of them say there's three different decrees. There's actually four, but three of them have to do with the temple. Only one has to do with the wall. That's what the book of Nehemiah is all about, to go back and rebuild the wall and reestablish the city of Jerusalem. And it turns out, we won't take too much time here, but the desolations of Jerusalem... Um, which are mentioned in Ezekiel 24, 2 Kings 25, and we're going to run into it again in Jeremiah 52. They, start, they, uh, they started uh, in the um, ninth year of Nebuchadnezzar, 10th month, 10th day of the month of Tabeth. The desolations end on the uh, 24th of Cheslev in the ninth month of the second year of Darius or of the Mede. But anyway, the negative is when you go through that arithmetic, it turns out to be 25,200 days or 70 years if you use 360-day years, to the day. So both periods of time are fulfilled precisely. And we're going to make a big thing of that later. But don't confuse the servitude of the nation and the desolations of the Jerusalem. They overlap, but they are actually, surprisingly enough, apparently distinct in prophecy and also yet both literally fulfilled. Um. So this chapter is going to deal with some of that. Uh, we're going to primarily focus tonight on the servitude of the nation, the Nebuchadnezzar uh, first siege thing here. Now, incidentally, where Jeremiah the prophet spoke unto all the people, first occurrence of that particular phrase, what Jeremiah is going to do is going to review 23 years of faithful ministry. He's about in mid-career mid point here. He has served 19 years under Josiah the king, the one that got killed at Megiddo, and four years under Jehoiakim. Bear in mind, Jehoiahaz and, and Jehoiachin both were three-month kind of tenures. They don't amount to a lot in that sense. Concurrent prophets with Jeremiah include Uriah, which we'll talk about later, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. 
So he wasn't alone. There were other prophets at the time. And I'm ignoring for the moment Daniel and, Daniel and Ezekiel, who are in Babylon, not in Jerusalem, or not in, uh, in, uh, J in Judea at the time. They're, they're slaves, and uh, ultimately they end up in, in um, Babylon. Jeremiah, 23 years of faithful ministry. What a miserable ministry to have, to have to try to get your nation to repent, knowing they won't, and to preside over their demise. Interesting, interesting situation. Whenever I think of that, I have to share with you an unrelated, but maybe not unrelated, anecdotal issue. Uh, I think some of you who know me, you've heard some of my previous tapes, know that uh, I was as a teen came to the Lord as a teenager and grew up well trained biblically. I happened to fall under some very sound teaching of some very good expositionally oriented Bible specialist teachers that gave me some valuable instruction during my pre-college years and uh, high school years. Um, in fact, I accompanied uh, a very prominent lecturer on his tour and got a chance to ask him a lot of questions, and it was, it was a wonderful learning experience. Then I went to the Naval Academy and got into my executive career and drifted from play. We, my wife and I have lived in 22 homes in our 30 years of marriage, so you can get some idea that we, we, we moved around a little bit. Uh, but as we did, as we moved from place to place, I didn't understand why it was that we never felt home in a, in, in a, in a, in a church home. We were in Methodist, Presbyterians, you name it, all the different denominational places as we'd move from place to place trying to find a church. We're not sophisticated in understanding why it was we never were comfortable. Looking back, as I learned and grew spiritually, I, I began to realize more and more that our problem was we took the Bible literally, and most ministers didn't. And we were, to some extent, in my opinion, victimized by what I like to just, what I'll call, for lack of a better word, call denominationalism victims of a liberal theology, victims of, of churches whose focus are on programs and structure and everything but the Lord Jesus Christ and everything but a sincere, unadulterated presentation of the Word of God. Things you and I here in this context take for granted, but especially in that era, it was something that was the exception rather than the rule, and certainly something you rarely found within the, the formal denominational structures. So anyway, for, for, for 18 years, from roughly my college entrance from, say, 50 through to about 1970, uh, I, uh, as I put that in spiritual perspective, was on the penalty box or in the bench or something. I didn't backslide. I didn't have the ima imagination to undertake gross sins. I don't have very dramatic, you know, testimony about drugs or fleeing jail or any of those kind of colorful things. I was just useless. You know, you know what an inoculation is? That's an imbuing of a, you know, a mild case of it to make you immune to the real thing. Well, that's exactly what was happening to me. Now, obviously, in the late 60s, we had things like the Six-Day War and other things. And I'll target about 1970, we, the Lord just really woke us up, made us very sensitive to the time we're living. All those things that I had learned as a teenager were happening. Israel was back in the land since May 1448, of course. But more importantly, Jerusalem was under the Star of David for the first time since Christ's words the week he was crucified, that Jerusalem would be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times the Gentiles are fulfilled. So we're obviously entering into a very important era, and so on. So that, you know, that woke us up, and I got close to a number of the people that, were, that you all know, Hal Lindsey, Walter Martin, and Chuck Smith, and people that were very articulate spokesmen for what, what really is a very independent viewpoint of, of what the Bible is really all about. 
Well, I developed as I as I woke up to the reality of my fundamental expositional background, and uh, I I have to be confess with you, I had I I started to harbor a lot of hostility towards the denominational background that had disenfranchised me for eighteen years. Now that's I'm not only non-denominational, if I'm really honest, I'm anti-denominational, which is probably you know not too constructive. But anyway, I was talking to Walter Martin one time about that. I was sort of mouthing off about how for eight, how denominationalism had stolen 18 years of my life. And he says, Chuck, that's okay, in his majestic style, point out, that's okay, Chuck, those are the years that the locusts have eaten. And I looked Walter in the eye, and I says, that's great, Walter. What do I do with that piece of information? <laughs> he says, well, Chuck, he promises to give you those back. And I shrugged that off saying, sure, you know, after the millennium or something, I mean, after the rapture or something. He says, no, 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 in your life, he will give you those years back. And uh, he admonished me to claim that as a, as a prophecy that he was giving me, that uh, those years would be returned to me. Well, I happened to be reminded of that recently, not only because we went through Joel not too long ago, but I was also intrigued because from 19, if I get the 18 years I lost, you know, that means I've got till 1988, Okay. So I've got to hurry through the major prophets in the Torah. Um, now, that doesn't mean the rapture's coming in 1988. I, I, you know, I may just get hit by a car or something. But the point is, uh, the point is, is that it's going to be interesting to see if he's counting, you know. Uh, but I, I share that with you. I, I don't think Jeremiah had those particular thoughts as he's looking at his 23 years of faithful ministry because he's about mid-career. He's got, he's got some mileage left in that, that man. But I'm always thinking about that, is that I praise God for the privilege of having been associated with you and having the opportunity here through uh, the ministry of this unique organization here and also through the the uh, channels that have been opened up by the tape ministries that are just awesome. And I just praise God that he's given me that chance to to repair the damage, to repair the, uh, the, the many years that I was uh, fruitless on his behalf. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.